Let's pray together. Father, we do so very much need you to speak to us now. We want a word from you, which means that we want to hear from the Bible. So, Lord, open up our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And, Father, we do ask you to come and help us in this way. In Jesus' name, amen. It's amazing to think that it has been 15 years since our country was attacked by terrorists on September 11th, 2001. And what is, what is equally amazing to me is that the students that I teach at Boyce College are becoming less and less aware of what happened on that day. In fact, the, the incoming freshmen of the fall of 2016, for the most part, most of them have no recollection of that day. That day does not and will not define their lives like it defines uh, most of ours. For many of us, 9-11 is the dividing line of our national life. We think of America in terms of what it was like before and what it was like after that day. And it's just not like that for this generation coming up. Do you remember what it was like before that day? Do you remember what it was like in the months and even the days and weeks leading up to that day? In the summer of 2001, American popular culture was focused on what it's focused on right now, frivolous celebrity culture. If you turned on the television, you see people chasing after celebrities and just all up into their lives. That summer was the summer of the shark. Anybody remember that? The summer of the shark, which all of the cable news networks, with nothing else to talk about, filled hour after hour and day after day all summer of coverage of stories about shark attacks around the world. Now, were there more shark attacks than usual around the world? No. But because there was no news, they were drumming up this panic about shark attacks. And it was just at, all the time, wall to wall. The big political controversy of the summer was the lingering fallout from the contentious presidential election, which came down to the state of Florida and it was contested and had to be decided by the Supreme Court. And the guy who won ended up not winning the, the popular vote. His legitimacy was being questioned by, by many in our country. Also, big news was that the, the new president's decision not to fund any embryonic stem, stem cell research that would destroy new embryos. Those were the things that the, the nation was focused on that summer and that, that people were talking about that was in the news. But all that stuff that we were focused on got swept away on Tuesday morning, September 11th, 2001. We all watched in horror as one World Trade Center and two World Trade Center burned. We watched in horror as the Pentagon burned. The symbols of American military and economic power, twin pillars of our security and peace, were reduced to an ash heap before our very eyes. 
we all felt so undone in that moment. Do you remember the feelings of that moment? In the days and months that followed, we all held our breath. We were all wondering if this was going to happen again. We kept thinking that there might be another shoe to drop. We thought that there was more to come. But in that moment, all of our nation's fascination with celebrity worship, it just stopped. Like instantly. All the late night talk shows that, that come on every night, they stopped broadcasting them. They stopped even recording them. They didn't come on. It was all news. Nobody, nobody would have even listened to them in those days. Nobody wanted to hear from a celebrity at that time. The frivolous Summer of the Shark cable news fixation was forgotten instantly. The bitter political divide festering after the presidential election, it ended instantly. And we didn't think about it anymore, and we didn't even think about the fact that we weren't thinking about it anymore. When you watch people leap out of burning towers to their deaths in order to escape flames behind them, it just has a way of, of clarifying things. What things are important and what things aren't. It made us think about the impossible decision that those jumpers made. It made us think about all the other people who made a different decision and didn't jump. We thought about what we would have done in their place. We thought about our own lives. Those people didn't seem very different from us, and we were horrified watching the terror inflicted on them. Every person in America that day was looking for something weighty and permanent to anchor them to hold them as the foundations seem to be crumbling beneath our feet. That's what it felt like. And all the usual amusements that we turn to seem so empty in the days after that attack. What I also remember about that day and about that week was the Sunday afterward. So it was Tuesday, September the 11th that the attacks occurred, and then it was Sunday, September 16th, that Americans by the droves went to church. And it was much more than usual. It was much more than like Christmas or Easter. Everybody, there was this national sense of spiritual urgency and this kind of a longing. And there were millions and millions of people who sought to address that by going to church that day. It was as if they knew that they might find something permanent and unmoving at, at the church house. And so they went. And Many churches around the country were ready for the people who showed up. And many churches were not ready. And the difference between those who were ready and those who weren't were the ones who preached the word of God and those that did not. One of the messages I remember listening to in the days after the attacks was um, a message delivered by John Piper. Uh, if you ever get a chance... Go back to church websites. Look at the messages that were preached on September 16th. It's very interesting to see how churches responded to this. But I remember his, his message distinctly. He came to church that morning wishing to fill his congregation with hope. And he asked his congregation a series of questions. This is what he said. I'm going to read to you an extended portion of this. 
He said, so how shall I strengthen your hope this morning? Shall I try to strengthen your hope politically and comfort you that America is durable and will come together in great bipartisan unity and prove that the democratic system is strong and unshakable? Shall I try to strengthen your hope militarily and comfort you that American military might is unsurpassed and can turn back any destructive force against the nation? Shall I try to strengthen your hope financially and comfort you that when the market opens on Monday, there will be stability and long-term growth to preserve the value of all your investments? Shall I try to strengthen your hope geographically and comfort you, comfort you that you live in the upper Midwest, far from the major political and military and financial targets that enemies might choose? Shall I try to strengthen your hope psychologically and send you to the webpage titled Self-Care and Self-Help Following Disasters so that you can read that there are individuals with strong coping skills, how they do that and maintain a view of self as competent and avoid regretting past decisions? Should I try to strengthen your hope eschatologically by comforting you that you won't be on the earth anyway when the, fire, the blazing fireball comes near your town? The answer to those six questions is, is very easy for me. No, I will not try to strengthen your hope in those six ways. And the reason I won't is also very simple. None of them is true. So I will not contradict my calling as a minister of the gospel by trying to strengthen your hope in those ways. I want to stare those realities of vulnerability and judgment square in the face with you and give you real, solid, and here it is, biblical hope. So then what is the hope? What is the basis for it? I'll give you my answer and then show you where I got it from the word of God. Our hope is that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not suffering and not even death. And then he goes on and he preaches Romans 8. And Bethlehem Baptist was among those churches that morning that were ready for the moment. When the throngs arrived to hear something weighty and permanent. When you're facing the most desperate and perplexing moments of your life, what is it that you want to hear? Or maybe a better way to ask it is this. When you're facing those moments of desperation, who is it that you want to hear from most? When you get the diagnosis that's dark, when your spouse finally tells you that she's through with you and gone, when you stand over the grave of a spouse that you were married to for more years in your life than you weren't married to that person, in that moment, who do you want to hear from? I can tell you who you don't want to hear from. You don't want to hear from the late night comedians. You're not going to care about what the Oscar winners think. You're not going to care what cable news people think. You're not going to care what politicians think. You're not going to care what they're saying about you on Twitter. The only person you're going to care about hearing from is someone with weight and gravity to put the ground back underneath your feet. Somebody who can connect your pain to a larger purpose and meaning, and who can make you promises about making all things new. That's the only person you're going to want to hear from. 
And whether people in our country realized it or not, on that day when the nation was groping for something permanent, what they were groping for was a word from God. At least that's the only thing that would have fulfilled. And what you are groping for in your most desperate moments is the same thing. And if that word is the only thing sufficient to define and to guide in your most desperate moments, it is the only thing sufficient to define and guide in your every moment. Last time we were in 2 Timothy, I began a sermon on 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 to 17. It was about being steadfast in gospel truth. And in particular, steadfast in the truth of the Bible. And so, so Paul's writing to Pastor Timothy that he's left in Ephesus, and he's telling him in this passage to continue in this truth and not to be turned aside from the truth of the Bible by suffering and persecution. Rather, he tells him, Timothy must continue to trust in the word of God because of the trustworthiness of those who taught him the word of God. And in Timothy's case, the people who taught him the word, who taught him the faith, were his mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice. But it is not merely the character of Lois and Eunice that are the basis for confidence in in the Bible in Timothy's case. It's the nature and the character of Scripture itself. And that's what verses 16 and 17 are about, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. But Paul, Paul is telling Timothy and he's telling us why we need the written word of God so much. And the reasons that he's going to give here are the, are the reasons that, that John Piper preached from a 2,000-year-old book on September 11, 2001. September 16, 2001. And it's why we need that word preached to us on September 11, 2016. It's because of three things, and here's, here's where we're going with this. It's because of what Scripture is, what Scripture does, and what Scripture produces. So in these three verses, we're going to look at what Scripture is, what Scripture does, and what Scripture produces. So the first thing is what Scripture is. Look at verse 16. He says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. Note, first of all, that the subject of these two verses is all Scripture. And the word that Paul's using here that's translated as Scripture is this Greek word. I'm going to use a few Greek words today, okay? So you don't have to memorize them, but I just want you to hear them. It's the Greek term graphe. It's where we get our English suffix graph, like in the word paragraph, okay? And it just means a writing. But in the New Testament, this word is used as a technical term to refer to the writings of the Old Testament. The 39 books, the the, the writings that we know of as the 39 books from Genesis to the book of Malachi. The New Testament wasn't finished as a canon yet when Paul was writing this, but the Old Testament was. And what we would say, what applies to the Old Testament also applies to the New Testament. But he was definitely talking about the word of God written. What does he say about it? Well, what he says refers to all of Scripture and not just some of Scripture. He says all Scripture. 
And the, the expression is in the singular, and it may mean that he wishes to, to stress each and every individual passage of Scripture. What does he say about each and every individual passage of Scripture? Two things. He says that they're breathed out by God and that they're profitable. Breathed out by God. That phrase actually translates a single word in the Greek. One word. And it's a word that doesn't appear anywhere else in Greek literature for, before Paul uses it right here in 2 Timothy. So what it looks like is that Paul, he basically made up a word to describe what Scripture is. What he did was he made a compound word. He took the word for God, theos, and he took the word for breathed, pneustos, from the verb pneuo, and he put them together. And he said, God breathed. He said, that's scripture. Some of your translations render it as inspired. That's okay, but I don't think it's as good as God breathed or as breathed out by God. Why? Because God breathed emphasizes the divine authority of scripture. It means that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. The very writings themselves, the graphe themselves, have the characteristic of God breathedness that means they are God's word they're not testifying to God's word they are God's word to you that means they partake of all the characteristics of truth that define God himself they can no more be in error than God can be in error if they are God's voice do you hear what I'm saying they never Air. They never lead you astray with reference to anything that they speak to, ever. If you say that they do, it would be tantamount to saying God leads you astray because they are God-breathed. But he doesn't just say that they're God-breathed. He says that they're profitable. This is just as important as the first thing. They're profitable, which means they're useful, beneficial, advantageous they're helpful in short they're good for you and it's good for you precisely because it is the word of God and in fact if you wanted to you might loosely render this whole phrase as all scripture is God breathed and therefore is good for you because God says it you need it this is the only revelation so it's God-breathed and it's good for you. But it's precisely those two attributes of Scripture that are often the most challenging attributes to believe. And the reason that they're so challenging to believe is because it's those two attributes of Scripture that false teachers and critics regularly attack. And they want to undermine your confidence in those two things, that this is God's word and that it's good for you. They don't want you to have confidence that this book is the word of God. And if they, can, if they fail to convince you that it isn't the word of God, then they want to, you to believe that it's not good for you. Maybe it's God's word, but it's just not good for me. There are other better things. And you will be vulnerable if you falter on either one of those points. If you want to know God and his goodness and mercy toward you, then you have to know this book. If you want to be ignorant of God and his mercy towards you, then you've got to ignore this book. 
Because there's no other place for you to know how to be wise unto salvation. Except for this book. If somebody tells you the gospel about how to be saved through Jesus Christ, you know how they got it? Maybe from somebody else told them. Maybe somebody else told them. But if you trace it back, it ultimately comes back to this witness. There is no other source. This is it. Last week, a well-known pastor of a large megachurch in Atlanta preached a message to his congregation about this very topic. He argued that the reason sometimes Christian kids grow up and leave the faith after they go off to college is because they've built their faith on the total truthfulness of this book. And he said doing that is like a house of cards. Because if you build your faith on the total truthfulness of this book, if anybody moves one card, then the whole thing falls. And when they go to college and their professor points out to them something that's not true in the Bible, then their whole faith collapses. And so he used, the pastor used the song, the children's song, Jesus Loves Me. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And this is what he told his church. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. This is where our trouble began. This is problematic for adults because the implication is that the Bible is the reason we believe. In other words, I can believe that Jesus loves me because it's in the Bible. If the Bible is the foundation of our faith, as the Bible goes, so goes our faith. End quote. And so he argues that when our kids go off to college... With their Bible-based faith, they lose their faith when they see problems in the Bible. And so he concludes and tells everyone, Therefore, we have to teach our kids and ourselves that our faith isn't based on the Bible. It's based on historical realities, like the resurrection and all those things that we believe in, but it's not based on the Bible. What's the problem with this? Well, the, the big obvious problem is that it fails to acknowledge the fact that the only reason we know anything about the historical realities is because of the Bible. You can't do an end run around the Bible and know something about those things. If you try to know something about those things, apart from this, you won't know anything about it. Every bit of our knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified and raised for sinners, comes from this. It would be like me saying to my wife, I really want to know how your day went and how you're doing. And when she begins to open her mouth to tell me, I go, ah, no words. <laughs> I've got some other way I'm going to get to how your day went and how you're feeling. No, I really don't. I'm going to either listen to her or I'm not going to know it. Another problem with this is that it functionally, it functionally divides God's authority from his word. If the Bible is God-breathed, then it bears the authority of God himself. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. Therefore, the written word has a self-authenticating power that cannot be nullified by some mewling professor. If someone is falling away from the faith when they go off to college, it's not because of too much Bible, but because of too little. Too little instruction, 
too little faithful living from the instructors. But it's not because of too much Bible. It's because of too little. I would like to ask this pastor, where do you think faith comes from? The Bible says faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. There is no Christianity inside any person apart from this word. Beware of any preacher or teacher who tries to drive a wedge between the Bible and what God is doing in the world. And beware of any preacher or teacher who would drive a wedge between the Bible and what God is doing in you. Don't think that anyone is ever going to believe in Christ by pushing the mute button on God's word. It ain't going to happen. If you have God's word, you have everything you need for life and godliness. You have everything you need to be faithful and fruitful in the gospel. Why? Because this word is God's word. It's not man's word. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 When you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it. Not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. That's what we believe about this word. Listen, we do apologetics. Apologetics are great. But we do them because we love our neighbor and because we want to remove stumbling blocks for them. We don't do apologetics because we think the authority of Almighty God depends on it. God's word can break through to the coldest heart with its very own self-authenticating authority. So you can stand on it with confidence and proclaim it. The simplest person among us can stand up and can proclaim this. And God can break down brick walls in people's heart with it. They won't stand before him. So, yeah, apologetics are important, but God's authority doesn't depend on it. If you go out here on the street and you see a Mack truck going up the hill two miles an hour and it's just powering up the hill, you can get out behind it and push it, but you're not helping. Okay? The Bible has a self-authenticating authority. We need to declare it and believe it. Why? Because it's Scripture and it's breathed out by God, and it's good for us. You believe that? This is a dividing line between faithful Christianity and fake Christianity. We are taking our stand on this book, and we're not going to talk about this book in ways that the Bible doesn't talk about this. This is why I, this is why I asked that we read from Psalm 119. Do you think the psalmist in Psalm 119 would ever say such a thing about the Bible? Our faith isn't based on the Bible. No. Our faith is based on the Bible because the faith, the Bible is the very word of God, bearing witness to what God has done for us in Christ. And so we believe it. So we know what scripture is, right? But we know what scripture does. Look at verse 16 again. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All scripture is breathed out by God and is good for you. 
But this text says that it's good for you in four very specific ways. For teaching, which means something like instruction. So it's telling us positively what we are to believe. It gives us sound doctrine. For reproof, which means something like rebuke. So scripture's telling us negatively what we should not believe. It disabuses us of unsound doctrine. Correction, which probably means something like setting right, most likely with a reference to conduct, some, some commentators think. So scripture's telling us negatively what not to do. And then finally, training in righteousness, which has the idea of teaching or education and right living. So the term tells us positively what we are to do. Guess what, Pastor Jim? It's a chiasm. Yeah. It's a chiasm. Two positive things on the outside, two negative things on the inside, right? But listen, uh, what's going on here? John Stott says that, that these four items are addressing two areas, creed and conduct. So the first two items are talking about creed. Second two items are essentially talking about conduct. And so it's showing us that the prophet of Scripture relates to both of those things. John Stott says this. He says, the false teachers divorced those two things, creed and conduct. We must marry them. He says, the New English Bible expresses the matter clearly. As for our creed, Scripture is profitable for teaching the truth and for refuting error. As for our conduct, it's profitable for reformation of manners and discipline in right living. In each pair, the negative and positive counterparts are combined. Do we hope, either in our own lives or in our teaching ministry, to overcome error and grow in truth, to overcome evil and grow in holiness? Then it is to Scripture that we must primarily turn, for Scripture is profitable for these things. That's what we believe about this. Scripture is given to us for our good, but for a particular good, for teaching us, for correcting us, training us in righteousness. Do you believe that the word of God is good for you in those things? Do you believe that it's good for you? For teaching you what to believe, what not to believe, for teaching you what to do and what not to do. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, you've got to be a follower of this book. Okay. The reason we know about him is because of what's here. So we know what scripture is. We know what scripture does. We know what scripture produces because of verse 17. Look at verse 17, what scripture produces. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, some people think that man of God is referring to, to the pastor in particular, perhaps to Timothy in particular. And if that were the case, then Paul would be saying that that, that scripture equips the pastor for the work of the ministry. Now, we, we think that's true, but I, I think maybe that another interpretation may be nearer the mark here. And the other interpretation takes man of God more inclusively. And on that view, man of God refers really to, to any person of God, though it may be focusing with a first application on Timothy's work, but it really applies to anyone who's a, who's a Christian, who's a believer who's trying to follow the word. If that's the meaning of, of the phrase, it means that scripture enables any person of God to be complete, which means capable, proficient, 
able to meet all demands of us. The Bible then would enable every believer to be capable of meeting whatever demands God, God places on us. Well, how does it do that? Well, look at the next phrase. The man, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And the sense of that last phrase is probably because he has been equipped for every good work. And he's been equipped by what? By the Bible. You and I were made for good works. Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's what Jesus said, right? Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God saved us, not so we could live like the devil. He saved us unto good works. That's his purpose for us, every single believer. So every single one of us are called to good works. And this text, 2 Timothy 3.17 is telling us that Scripture equips and enables us for every single one of those good works. Every one of us. In every work. There is nothing that God calls you to be and to do that He doesn't equip you for through the Scripture. This is a massive statement about the sufficiency of Scripture for you. To give you everything you need for life and godliness. It makes you complete and ready. Whatever it is that you're facing, Whatever it is that God has prepared beforehand for you to walk in, you're prepared for it by this word. How many of you remember the name Todd Beamer from 15 years ago? It's a name I won't ever forget. He was one of the heroes who died on board United Flight 93. You may remember his wife, Lisa Beamer. They had two sons, and she was pregnant at the time that, that he died aboard that, that flight. And both of them were evangelical Christians, and both of them were graduates of, of Wheaton University. And I just found out yesterday that their son just matriculated into Wheaton University this fall and is playing football for them. But if you remember Todd Beamer and you remember the, the story of Flight 93, Flight 93 took off from New Jersey bound for San Francisco uh, that fateful morning. Soon after takeoff, the terrorists got up and they... Uh, killed the pilots and took over the plane. And they redirected the plane towards Washington, D.C., where many people believe they were on their way to, to attack the Capitol building. While they were on, on, on route to this, the passengers began using the airplane phones and communicating with people on the ground, and they figured out that the United States was under attack. They knew they had to figure out how to get control of the plane from, from the terrorists. And so as all these passengers were huddled near the back of the plane, they began to formulate a plan. And Todd Beamer was back there with them. And he picked up one of the phones at one point to call his pregnant wife. And his call got redirected to an operator, a GTE telephone operator. Her name was Lisa Jefferson. And so Beamer told the operator that the plane that he was on had been hijacked, that the passengers were planning to take back the plane from the terrorists. And then he asked her if she would pray with him, the Lord's Prayer. And according to some reports, he also asked her to pray Psalm 23. 
And so there he was in the back of the plane. He's getting ready to go into the fray with these terrorists. And he's on the phone with this woman that he doesn't know, saying, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So he finishes these prayers with the operator, drops the phone, and the operator says she hears him say to the others, let's roll. And they go forward and they attack the terrorists. And you remember the story. We don't know everything that happened, but they could hear the struggle on the black box. And they, at some point, came into the cockpit. And we know that the plane did not go down at the Capitol. It went down in a field outside of Shanksville, Pennsylvania. When Todd Beamer got up that morning, he didn't know that the good work he would be called to would involve fighting terrorists and thwarting their plans to destroy the United States Capitol and all the people in it. But that's what he was called on to do that day. And what did he call for in the last moment? What equipped him for the moment? The word of God. would have been absurd to say to him, don't build your faith on that. You have no idea what kind of good works God may providentially put before you, whether they will be everyday faithfulness of going to work, loving your spouse, raising your kids. Maybe the Lord will make you face a disease. Maybe he'll make you face a terrorist to wrest control of a hijacked airplane from him. No matter what it is that God calls you to, God equips you for every good work in those moments through his word. He equips you for every good work that he calls you to do through scripture, which means you need to be ready. Because you know what scripture is you know what scripture does and you know what scripture produces in you which means 
there's probably some really practical things that you need to be doing right now. Let me tell you three things quickly. You should read the word. You ought to read it. And you ought to read it like somebody who believes that these are really the words of God. That you are looking at divine revelation when you lay your eyes on this book. You should read the word. I think you ought to try to read through the word if you've not done this before. Try to read through the word every year. There are plans to do this. The best thing I ever did in my life in terms of learning the Bible was not going to seminary. Okay, That was good. It helped. The best thing I ever did was in college, I started reading my English Bible straight through over and over and over again. That's the best thing you can do. Second thing I would say is memorize the word. If you need to, use a plan. I've never been much for plans. I've found that the more I read it over and over, the more it just starts sticking in my brain. And I just start remembering stuff. And it's precious stuff that God will bring to you at the time that you need it. So you read the word, you memorize the word, and then you pray the word. Let the word infuse the way you address yourself to God and the way that you praise God. Listen, our church is in the middle of this massive series that, that Jim is leading us through, through the Psalms. Did you know the Psalms are considered the prayer book of the church historically? This is where we learn to pray. And their Bible direct addresses to God. Did you know a third of the Psalms are lament Psalms? which are teaching us how to pray when we're crying because of pain and hurt in our lives. If you will read the word, memorize the word, and pray the word, you're going to find this thing taking root in you and performing its work in you who believe. And you're going to find it equipping you in ways that you never imagined. And you're going to know what it's like to experience the self-authenticating power of the word of God. And it will be like a fortress in your soul. And it will be like that for your kids. Paul says in this passage that the scriptures are able to make us wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. If you were to boil down the message of this book. From Old Testament to New Testament, it's about Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, you need to. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who lived a perfect life. He lived the life that you have failed to live. And then he offered himself up as a sacrifice. He took the penalty that you and I deserve because of our sins when he died on the cross. And then three days later, God raised him up from the dead. And he ascended into heaven, and he is seated right now at the right hand of God. And one day he will come back from there, and we will all see him with our own eyes. The Bible says that his death accomplishes forgiveness of sins for for sinners. His life, his resurrection, is the promise of eternal life for any sinner who believes in him. If you don't know him, you can know him now. As that message comes to you from this book, 
and tells you to, believe, to repent of your sin and believe in him. There's nothing you can do to earn this. He earned it for you. You just have to believe. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray if anyone here doesn't know you or is resisting you, I pray that you would bear witness to this word this morning by saving them powerfully. I pray that you would make it irresistible to them that they feel themselves called forth by you from your word to be saved. Lord, draw your people to yourself. Save sinners. Father, I pray that you would grow us up in the word of God. Help us to have enough sobriety about us not to be so distracted by amusements that we neglect it. And help us to realize the privilege that we have to even hold it in our hands in a book. So many generations of Christians didn't even have that. We've got multiple copies of these things laying around our house. So Lord, I pray that you'd make us faithful to our, our opportunities. And I pray that you'd make us strong and faithful and fruitful. And that you'd do it in Jesus' name. Amen.